Hello, and welcome back to Security Insights, the podcast that takes a deeper look at today's most important issues in cybersecurity and beyond. I'm Stephen Pritchard, editor and presenter. The EU's Cyber Resilience Act sets out to boost security for anything with digital elements. This covers both hardware and software, and the idea is to make it easier to update devices and fix any security vulnerabilities. So why then has a group of cybersecurity professionals written an open letter to the European Commission asking them to change a key part of the proposed rules? Cybersecurity experts are concerned that by requiring organisations to disclose vulnerabilities within 24 hours, the Act could increase rather than reduce risks. Our guest today is Christine Begarasco, CISO at WithSecure and one of the signatories of the letter. I asked her to explain the background to the Cyber Resilience Act and some of the arguments around it. My understanding of the Cyber Resilience Act, the spirit of the Act is really about ensuring that these products that have digital elements that are out there are actually being well taken care of by the organizations that are producing them all throughout their life cycle. So essentially, having a room for patching vulnerabilities and making sure that these organizations are acting responsibly even when these products are already out there in our digital society. And this is not just focused on software at all. In fact, it specifically covers both hardware and software, doesn't it? Absolutely, yes. Why is that important? Well, when it comes to the different products that we have nowadays, um, many of them could could actually be embedded systems, for example, when it comes to the Internet of Things. And some of the factors, some of the areas or the the different elements, uh, so to speak, that we have in these different products could mean that different manufacturers are the ones that are updating them or different manufacturers are the ones responsible for them. And there are some organizations that are then the ones who are just assembling them. So it could be that multiple organizations are responsible for one particular product. And if you break this down a bit, though, it says in the introduction to the act that it's products with a digital element, but surely that is everything these days. <laughs> yeah, it's actually quite encompassing. And um, the, I mean, when it comes to this act, uh, untangling, untangling the individual things like on this level may actually still be quite tricky. I mean, of course, when the rubber hits the road, when this is really being enforced, then that's when this will encounter the realities of what's happening out there in the market. But at the moment, it does sound very much encompassing. But um, there are also, if we actually go deeper, um, there are different class of products that are actually being addressed. And uh, these different uh, different types of products are also the ones that are um, they have different requirements sort of of this different class of products. Like for instance, if you are a cybersecurity product, then you have the, you're into a different class of products. And with the other directives, um, for instance, the NIST two directive, uh, there is also there is also a different classification of different types of products that are out there. So the act, so to speak, goes also deeper 
uh, when it comes to the other articles that it now has uh, within it. So is their intention really to try to reduce cybercrime? Because again, in the introduction to the Act and the information that the European Union has published, they talk about this annual cost of cybercrime of 5.5 trillion euros and potentially making a link to poor quality updates, vulnerabilities in some of the products and services that are out there. So is it really very much a crime prevention focused campaign that they're trying to run with this law? From my perspective, no. So um, what this can actually address is to minimize the blast rages of the fallout, uh, potentially, if there is a crime. So like all of these different intentions are trying um, to address things at the source and not really, uh, for example, when, when you go forward towards law enforcement, then that would be then the part that you will then start addressing crime. Because if I look at these different items um, that are being required, they go towards the organizations, the manufacturers of these different devices, who many actually, I mean, even though they haven't been legislated, for example, like bug bounty programs, even though there's no legislation that really requires some of these organizations to have bug bounty programs, whether by necessity, um, because these organizations want to be perceived as quite good in their cybersecurity posture, or whether by um, the really the strong desire to make sure that these organizations are able to see their bugs before other external organizations or unwanted organizations who may want to weaponize these vulnerabilities would find them first. So they try to create their own bug bounty programs. And um, therefore, this seems to be the type of organizations that are more, that this act is more targeting towards rather than figuring out um, where, where the actual cyber crime would be happening. Are they targeting particular areas? Because again, we talk about hardware and we're talking about software as well. So it isn't specific to either. But if you read between the lines of what they've said, the concern seems to be focused on hardware with inadequate updates, things that are difficult to update, and also a lack of consumer information about which products are secure and which products on the market are potentially less secure, more vulnerable to attacks because they can't be updated or they've not been hardened how how do you yeah how do you see that developing and how do you see that all hanging together well while that's part of the challenge that um there is really no specificity like at the moment and my hope is that this will actually become as well more specific um even when we're talking about hardware um the same challenge is actually there because um quite many of uh Quite many of the hardware that we have have well what they call digital elements have software that run on top of them and these software have open source libraries i mean they these are also composed of the different types of components that even pure software products are running on and therefore when it comes to vulnerabilities and their disclosure and trying to patch and fix them it's the same flow that organizations typically undergo when it comes to fixing them. So I'm, I mean, whether this is pure software or um, like in the end, it's only on products that have a hardware component, then at the end of the day, the vulnerability 
disclosure process um, would still be quite impactful and at times actually may even more, be more challenging when it comes to hardware elements because of the different type of materials that go into it, including the software, which is part of their bill of materials. So that sounds like quite a technical approach to cybersecurity on the one hand, but on the other hand, they're talking about consumer information and the fact that buyers or users don't have sufficient information about which products are secure and which are not. And if we go back to the statement that the EU put out just over a year ago now, it actually says to address an insufficient understanding and access to information by users. Now, that sounds to me as a very consumer-focused idea or notion for legislation rather than a technical cybersecurity measure aimed at the industry. So how how do you see those as, as a CISO? How do you see those two things balancing? Even can they be balanced in the same piece of legislation? Um, I think they can be, uh, but there needs to be another element that comes into play. And um, while I hate to say this, uh, sometimes uh, the certifications that we get is actually a distillation of all of the different requirements that um, organization might need at times in order to uh, in order to comply with a certain regulation. But there are also times that it's only to get certain certifications. And with those certifications, for instance, like if if consumers are really um, aiming for to to purchase. Uh, products, for instance, that have very high cybersecurity posture and all throughout their life cycle, the organization who's supporting them is responsible for making sure that they all get security updates, et cetera. So some, some IoT device, for instance, um, if there is a label that your organizations would then have sort of a compliance label to make sure that, okay, they are I don't know, this is just an example. For example, somebody is like silver, gold, or platinum compliant on that certain level, then consumers would be better informed that this is the most cyber secure, for instance, uh, product. And this is this is maybe not a cyber secure, but it's also a little bit cheaper, et cetera, in order to give them those options. But of course, if you put this on the level of um of a regulation, like a requirement, for instance, um, for organizations to comply with it, then it could end up becoming binary. And uh, the, the vulnerabilities, for example, um, reporting within 24 hours when an exploit is found, et cetera, it doesn't really leave much room for navigation for organizations because it's 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 very much binary that you need to report if something is already exploited. If there's an exploit available for that vulnerability, then you include it in the report. And um, the challenge I see here is that quite a bit of these organizations who are really responsible for doing this would already have quite substantial bug bounty programs. And if I if I look at uh, the the document actually that um, the CRA has in um, in the European Union website, they are even quoting about the uh, WannaCry vulnerability in 2017, which was, of course, for the for the Windows uh, operating system. And if we think about that, then maybe something that was forgotten as well is the, the exploit that was actually used during that time actually was 
taken by the hackers from a very secure organization, which is the NSA. And it was then publicly disclosed and then ended up being weaponized. And that's why WannaCry happened. So there's this there's this level of um there's this level of uh, responsibility that we we need to be mindful for instance when it comes to these vulnerabilities that we find in all these products because in the past 20 years for instance we have seen what has happened uh when there was full disclosure which is which was never good because all of these vulnerabilities were exposed then publicly and um and then we navigated through time with that and now ended up with responsible disclosure organizations of bug bounty programs, which the disclosure could be between 60 to 120 days, uh, for instance, after the reporting of the vulnerability, which gives substantial time to fix the problem. And if they have bug bounty programs, then these organizations are actually responsible enough, so to speak, to make sure that their products are constantly being tested for latest vulnerabilities. So what I'm saying really is they need to also get some some points for the level of diligence that they are already doing and then to have that reflected back to customers and then say that, okay, this is a better choice when it comes to cybersecurity. Is this why you and some other organizations are saying that the disclosure requirements in this proposed legislation could be counterproductive? Yeah, that, that's the tricky bit, really, because um, it becomes problematic if these organizations are sort of like pushed to disclose very quickly, because at the end of the day, fixing these vulnerabilities is not all that they will do. And um, even when they have bug bounty programs, for example, we have a bug bounty program in our organization, um, it means that they will resource that themselves or they get a third party to uh, to perform uh, the, the bug bounty, the handling of the bug bounty program for them and then interface with these different researchers. So that, that's already work that they have invested in. And of course, this will add on top of that if uh, the requirement would then be to report every time we see this. And I, I can just imagine like larger larger organizations, they must get this all the time. Because every software that we have out there would have vulnerabilities. It's just dependent on what is, like, how hard is it to find those vulnerabilities. And then this will add, like, additional reporting coming from these organizations, even though these may be the vulnerabilities that are found in good faith. But additionally, it's also very tricky to have all of these vulnerabilities that are that we already know to be exploited because that's why they need to be reported. When we know that they are exploited, we end up reporting them. They go into this repository of different vulnerabilities that have exploits and perhaps no patches. And um, I mean, that, that's a very, for one, that's a very good target for threat actors uh, basically to utilize. And it's also challenging to give that into the hands, uh, for instance, of different government agencies who may have a different mandate, um, for example, to, to perform intelligence uh, related to those data. 
And we have also seen that happen already before, and it's also still happening now, because we have um, exploit acquisition platforms even that are purchasing exploits for vulnerabilities, so exploits that haven't been patched yet. And these are the types of platforms that different government agencies could then go to and then utilize this for different purposes. So now we are sort of funneling all of them in a single place, and that's quite concerning. So your worry would be that this is forcing the early disclosure of vulnerabilities that otherwise could be dealt with and patched rather than it's an unnecessary bureaucratic requirement to disclose within a certain period of time. So we already have uh, some disclosure legislation in different parts of the world, some of it quite quite rigorous. Yeah. Well, of course, and it just adds to that. Of course, that, that's just the extra burden. And if there's really regulations, then at the end of the day, it's just the cost of doing business. But the other side, you're right, because the, I mean, what we have seen when disclosure happens prematurely is really quite chaotic. I mean, that is when the impact of um, an exploited vulnerability becomes quite of va- vast and very costly for different organizations. But even when, I mean, the, the stuff that we have seen, even WannaCry, I mean, some of those vulnerabilities have been patched for a while. But the challenge is that many organizations um, may not have had the capacity or even the rigor to perform vulnerability patching continuously, and therefore the impact would then be quite wide as well. And we have even seen, like even even with Confluence vulnerabilities uh, that we have seen, I think a little bit more than a year ago, there have been vulnerabilities that have been exploited less than 24 hours after the security advisory has been released, which means that the patch is already out, but they still end up being exploited. And um, we have incident responsors that have responded to these cases. So this trend, the transparency, while it's made with good intentions, and you can see from the spirit of the act, really, that it's the intention to make sure that this transparency would hold these different uh, manufacturers, these different providers accountable. At the end of the day, it could be that the public is the one that ended up um, being challenged and being impacted if these are then misused because it has been disclosed too early. So the group, and there's some very high profile names on this letter that's been published, the group, are they calling for the act to be reviewed for this part to potentially be removed from the legislation or are they looking for some other form of adaptation or modification to it? Well, there's two things really. Um, Either that article, uh, Article 11, uh, would be the one removed or um, a modification has also been proposed. So um, either of those would already sort of like push this forward. Because like said, the spirit of this piece of legislation is very much in the right place. It's just a matter of just making sure that we have a risk-based approach when it comes to this and take on the learnings that we have had, for instance, over the past two decades, on what we have seen threat actors do whenever they have seen vulnerabilities that could be exploited that are out there. Because we have always seen them utilize this. 
So let's make sure that we just learn from that and then take that into consideration when we hopefully modify this piece of legislation. But if we took it out, or if the EU takes it out, does that undermine part of what they're trying to achieve? Because surely prompt disclosure is a key thing to ensure that buyers have an informed picture of the security levels of what they're buying, whether that's software or a product. Quite a lot, actually, of the the overall piece of legislation is already pushing the organizations towards a certain direction. So if we really want to keep it, if we really want to keep um, the disclosure part of it uh, within the act, then it would, I mean, we would be amenable, of course, to, um, to a modification considering that coordinated and responsible disclosure would then be part of it, as well as, uh, well, taking taking the data that we have seen from the past 20 years into a piece of legislation and distilling that and making sure that we don't repeat the problems that we have seen before. So it, it would be absolutely fine to just have the modification in place. But another point that you're making in the letter is that you fear that it could dissuade researchers from acting, and especially in the environments of bug bounty programs and other voluntary disclosures, it could deter researchers from looking into and finding vulnerabilities. Uh, what makes the group think that that could happen and why would that be a bad thing? On this part, this is a little bit more on the bug bounty programs and um, the extra work, uh, for instance, that would happen with organizations that are doing this. So um, this is a little bit what we discussed earlier that if I now need to do government disclosure as well for every reported vulnerability um, to my end. Because of course, once an exploited vulnerability is reported, we perform a triage on whether this is, is this legitimate, um, is this a real vulnerability, have we seen this before, or do we consider this even a vulnerability? And within a bug bounty program, there are also uh, products and services that are out of scope that, for instance, um, these researchers may even find. So the question then becomes, are they in scope for reporting? Or is it only that the products that we have put out there to be part of the bug bounty program are the ones in, in scope for reporting? So they, there's a little bit of this that um, would need to be navigated through. And of course, with organizations who are willing to navigate them, eventually you'll land into a place where it becomes business as usual. But it doesn't mean that it, it's not costly to begin with. And it's this question of cost now that um, could potentially deter organization uh, for organizations from having the bug bounty programs because they, then they would need to they would need to then perform um, disclosures to this government. and then the the question then becomes for these good faith researchers would be that, because a lot of them um, in different parts of the world actually do this for a living. If they find vulnerabilities in those products that don't have bug bounty programs or no longer have bug bounty programs, would they be the ones that are willing to go gray, for instance, and then sell those exploits in exploit acquisition platforms instead? 
and not to the software manufacturers to fix them, but to sell those. And then we don't know what the exploit acquisition platforms would then do with those exploits. So that that's kind of the fear as well, because I mean, the market for these exploits exists out there. And if it's easier to sell it to them rather than to set, to to monetize what they have found and give this to the organizations who are able to patch them, then the choices become a little bit more, it leans a little bit more towards the wrong direction. So could it actually dissuade companies from operating bug bounty programs because they're concerned that if they find something, they'll have to disclose it to governments? It potentially could if it's too costly um, to perform this reporting. So is your concern the bureaucracy and cost of the reporting, or is it something deeper that actually this is going to change the marketplace and the good faith researchers won't be able to operate in the way they currently do? Because it's all going to be tied into, I think it says in the letter, each disclosure could trigger a wave of government notifications, which potentially puts that vulnerability out there, but it also disadvantages the researchers because they can't then gain the rewards and also, the and also the firm can't act to close the vulnerability down before it's disclosed, which is what you talked about before. Okay, as, as well, yeah. The the deeper reporting is um, of course more concerning, but it starts with, I mean, the impact starts with how organizations would then react to this, which would then have um, the effect to the researchers who have been submitting to these organizations, and what could happen then to the exploit market. So that could be, I mean, at the end of the day, I mean. It's possible that this may not happen, but the challenge here is that these researchers, the ones that we we have seen actually, they are not in the jurisdictions where the EU, for instance, could do something. But since all of this are reported globally, they are in different locations all over the world, and they can test our different products and services online, and therefore they definitely have options into and into finding like where else could they sell a potentially exploited vulnerability and they have options online to do this yeah and the last thing we want to do is to see researchers selling more vulnerabilities into the dark web or potentially to hostile governments that would go completely against what the eu is trying to do that would be really bad exactly yes what discussions have you or your group had with the european commission about this from my end i don't believe i've had any discussion yet so i've i've never had a face to face or voice to voice discussion with the eu yet only this document that we have been submitting and um hoping really that it would reach the right audience and would get the right type of reaction. So very open for discussions whenever whenever somebody on the other end finds the need. Um, what reaction has there been so far? Um, a lot of the reaction is coming from the media so far. So um, just asking, asking different questions, uh, for instance, having different discussions with different media agency and for them unpacking this. Um, which probably adds, well, it adds to the message to be to be reaching in the right direction. But from my end, I mean, there is no direct communication yet coming from uh, government entities related to this. But it's also highly possible that because there, there are several of us, there are dozens of us that have signed this, that others in there could have been contacted already as well. So we need to we need to check. And what would you like them to do? 
I would really love for them to review this, um, sit down, ask us the questions that, for instance, you have been asking, and then ask us for the details related to the concern. Because, of course, the letter is there, but the letter is very much a summary of the different um, experiences that is distilled into a recommendation. And if we can just sit down and um, see when something happened then, what was the side effect and why we why we believe that we could foresee that things may be headed into a direction that this act might not want to go. And then just have a discussion on how this can be tweaked to get into the direction that the spirit of this act is aiming to achieve. Because like I said, this is a good piece of legislation if it helps really completely to steer the boat into the direction that we want, and it also incorporates the lessons that we have learned from the past. Christine Bekarasko, setting out the concerns of cybersecurity experts and researchers about the CRA, and what they would like to see changed. That, though, is all for this episode of Security Insights. In our next programme, we will investigate how quantum computing could impact security. You could listen to that from Thursday the 30th of November. Until then, do catch up on past programmes on our website, securityinsights.co.uk, or subscribe and rate the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon and Spotify. Thanks again for listening.